The sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And there we read, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We are in a series through Hebrews, and this morning we come to this fourth major warning passage in the letter. It's a solemn passage. This is one of those passages in the Bible that is very easy to misunderstand, that is very easy to uh, misinterpret. And so we have to approach it very carefully, very thoughtfully. We need to, of course, do this with every passage in the Bible, but especially with those that are more challenging and that have been uh, debated over the centuries. And this is one of those passages. We know as we consider the context of these uh, verses and the context of, of this letter as a whole, that the Hebrew Christians that this letter was written to uh, were tempted to leave Christ, to forsake their profession of faith in Christ, and to return to the old covenant ways of worship. They were tempted to do so because of the persecution that they were facing, the rejection that they were facing because they confessed Christ as Lord. They were living in Jewish communities, uh, and their fellow Jews that they were raised with uh, denied Christ. And so when the Hebrew Christians professed faith in Christ, they were immediately excluded uh, from the community. So it was because of persecution, it was because of rejection, that social pressure that we feel even in our nation today. And it was also uh, because of immaturity that they were tempted to leave Christ and to return to the old covenant ways of worship. They had not grown, they had not matured in their understanding of who the Lord Jesus was. And we know that a shallow faith is not a strong faith. And so it seems as we consider this context that some had already fallen away from the church. They had already removed themselves from the visible church. We see this especially in verses 25 through 26, where we read just a few verses before our passage, the author exhorting the church and us this morning not to neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. So we see from these verses that, it, that some had perhaps already pulled away from the church 
They had returned to the Old Covenant way of worship. They had returned to Judaism. They knew the gospel. They heard about what God had done through and had accomplished through Jesus Christ in in redemption, but they ended up rejecting it. They turned away from it. And so the question then is, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Why is walking away from Christ such a serious matter? What's at stake? And that's what the author is getting across to the Hebrew Christians as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what the author, the Holy Spirit, is teaching us this morning as a church. What is at stake if we leave our profession of faith in Christ? We see verses 26 through 27 explained very clearly to us what is at stake. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So as we look at these verses, I want to invite you to look very closely at verse 26. And we see there the way it begins with the phrase, for if we go on sinning. Now, the tense of the verb here indicates that there is ongoing sin. The author is not talking about a sin that was committed in the past, that was repented of. But what he is speaking about is a sin that is ongoing. And not only that, but... He calls it a deliberate sin. For if we go on sinning deliberately. Now this word means willing participation. It's a willing action. It's not something that you can do passively. It's not something that's done uh, with a foggy mind, you know, in a moment of temptation. No, what it refers to is something done with a clear mind, with a firm, deliberate Step. It's something that has done full knowledge of, of what is taking place. You know, parents, we know that when our children are very small, uh, their disobedience is often a result of their ignorance, of their immaturity. You know, an infant who uh, throws food across the table can easily uh, be forgiven. Right? As parents, we correct them, but we do so gently at that age because we know that uh, They are merely babies. But as our children get older, and they start to clearly understand right from wrong, we begin to expect more from them. And we begin seeing that their disobedience is often a result of deliberate sin. So we're willing to overlook a baby throwing food, but not a first grader. One is done in ignorance, and the other is done uh, with deliberate intent. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is explaining. This sin, this deliberate sin, is ongoing. It is committed by someone who knows what they are doing, and they are persisting in it. There's no repentance from it. And we know this because of the next phrase in the verse, the phrase, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. See, these people, the writer is speaking of, is... People who heard the gospel, 
They were taught about Christ's work of redemption. They were catechized. They professed faith at one point. They were members of the church, part of the believing community. They were fully aware of what the gospel taught. They were not ignorant. And so as we consider this verse, putting these ideas together, we see that the deliberate sin that the author is warning us about is the sin of rejecting Christ. It's the specific sin of ceasing to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. It is the sin of living in continued rejection of Christ by looking for another way to stand accepted before God, to stand in righteousness before God. It is rejecting Christ and pursuing some other means of salvation. This is what the whole argument of uh, the book of Hebrews has been about, hasn't it? Showing Christ as superior, as the great high priest, as the Son of God. And because he is superior, he is therefore the only way of salvation that God has provided. He is better. He is superior. He is the sum and substance of all the old covenant types and shadows. And so what Hebrews is warning against is deciding that something is better than the superior one that has just been shown to us throughout the epistles and we know throughout uh, the scriptures. It's believing that there is something better than him, that there is someone or something superior to him. It's believing that we can stand before God through some other mediator, that we can stand before God uh, through some other means and still believe that we can be saved. So in other words, it is failing to put one's faith in Jesus and persisting deliberately in that unbelief. And this is very important for us to understand, beloved, uh, because otherwise, if we don't understand that this is the specific sin the author of Hebrews is referring to, if we don't understand this, we will approach this passage out of context and we will misunderstand it. And if we approach this passage out of context, we will neglect then to consider the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. And we will, as so many Christians who have misread this passage, we will struggle with the idea of assurance. Because this passage, as we've seen, is not talking about somebody who truly trusts in Jesus and yet is struggling with some ongoing sin is struggling with some besetting sin, but it is talking about somebody who has rejected Christ outright and is pursuing some other means of salvation. We need to understand this. Because, loved ones, each of us struggles with sanctification. Each of us struggles with besetting sin, with ongoing sin. None of us is perfect. We understand, don't we, that sanctification is a lifelong process that is incremental and that is difficult. The Bible describes the process of sanctification as as a battle, as a struggle, as a fight. These are very arduous, difficult things 
And it's something that we know can sometimes be discouraging as we are in this fight of the faith. We know that sin is an enemy that we will, by the grace of God, in the last day overcome, but it is still an enemy that we will fight against all of our lives up till that point. We will fight against it as we fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race marked out for us. And so, loved ones, this passage is not speaking about our struggle in sanctification. Again, a struggle that will only end when we are perfected at death, when we will in that day behold Christ and be made like him. It's not speaking about sanctification, but the passage is speaking about someone who, along the way, once trusted in Jesus, but they no longer do. They've given up on Jesus. They're looking somewhere else for their hope, somewhere else for their fulfillment. They have pulled themselves away, withdrawn from the believing community, from the church. They've left the fold of Christ. And so what will happen to such a person? Well, the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that for someone who denies the only way of salvation, there is no other way to be saved. See, the writer of Hebrews is not speaking about a single sin, as we said, adultery, theft, or lying, but he is describing one who with a hardened heart, with a commitment to oppose Christ and reject him, completely walks away from the profession of faith and from the church. And what will happen? Very clearly explained to us in verses 26 through 27. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Loved ones, the Bible makes very clear what will happen. The Bible makes very clear what's at stake. For the person who falls away from their profession of faith and who persists in rejecting Christ, there is no other way of salvation. They will fall under the judgment of God. They will experience the torments of hell forever. It's made very clear for us in verses 28 through 29 about this greater punishment that we are warned about. We read, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? What we see in these verses is an argument from the lesser to the greater. And what is presented is first an argument that the first century readers of the letter to the Hebrews, first century readers, most of whom were formerly Jews and who were familiar with the Old Testament, it's an argument that they would have understood and readily agreed to, that we, this morning, understand as well. We find this lesser argument in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What Hebrews is referring to is the clear teaching that in the Old Testament, those who violated the covenant and turned from the Lord to idols were to be put to death. We read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, as 
Moses reiterates to the second generation of Israel who is going into now the promised land, reiterates what God commands in his word. We read there, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall Bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing. And you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So... You shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, loved ones, why, why did God take the sin of idolatry so seriously, so seriously as to command capital punishment for this sin? Well, he took it very seriously because he is the only true God. And when speaking to Israel, he was speaking to his redeemed people. He was in covenant with them. He was their God. They were to be his people. He had a jealousy for them, a righteous jealousy. He specifically told them that he is the one who redeemed them. He is the one who called them by name, that they were to be his people and his people alone. That there is no other God, no other power, no other force in the world that can do what he did for his people Israel in giving them promises and fulfilling those promises and drawing them out of slavery and now bringing them into this promised land, it was all God who brought this about. It wasn't the gods of the Canaanites. It wasn't the gods of the Amorites. Those were all false gods. It's amazing when you read the Old Testament, it's not as though the gods of other religions are, are spoken of as lesser gods, as though they had any kind of real power or authority. They're spoken of as not gods because in reality they don't exist. There is only one true God. And so when Israel insisted on turning to idols, they were in essence saying, God, you're not the one true God. You are not our Redeemer. We don't want to be in covenant with you. We will put our trust in someone or something else that we believe has more power to save, more power to bless, more power to give us what we want. And because of that, loved ones, those who turned away in this hard-heartedness, what they experienced was the covenant curses that fall upon unbelievers. It was that capital punishment that was to be carried out by the people of Israel. It was that capital punishment that God commanded in order to strike fear in the hearts of his people to remind them of the danger of turning away from 
the one true God of turning to false idols. And so in using this example, Hebrews points out the greater danger of rejecting the Son of God, the greater danger of turning away from the Lord Jesus. Because we might think, you know, living in the new covenant, we might think that the danger is less severe because when somebody commits idolatry today, there's no capital punishment immediately carried out. We might think that it's not as big of a deal anymore as it was in the old covenants. And yet the writer of Hebrews says that there is a greater punishment for the one who denies Christ. Why? Well, as we've seen thus far in the letter of Hebrews, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. And the greater has now come, the new covenant. And the mediator of that covenant, Christ, has come. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. It has greater blessings, greater revelation. We are in the new covenant, and so we have a superior priest. We have Christ himself. We are in the new covenant, and so we have a superior sacrifice. We have Christ himself. So, loved ones, it follows that those who reject this superior covenant and this superior mediator deserve even greater punishment than those who rebelled under an older revelation. This is what we read in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Now, the writer of Hebrews really explains to us the rebellion of those who have turned away from the gospel. This rebellion is depicted in three ways in this verse. And the expressions, as you've noticed, are, are very visual. First, we read that they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. Now, this means that uh, they have uh, treated the Son of God as a uh, dirt. Something that is trampled underfoot is the stuff that we consider worthless. It's dirt itself. And so to reject Jesus as Lord and Savior is to show complete contempt for him, to completely write him off as worthless. Look at the way that the writer of Hebrews connects what is trampled underfoot with the Son of God. Right? This Son of God who we have been reading about in Hebrews is equal with the Father, is eternal, is greater, is superior to the angels, is superior to Moses, is superior to everything in the Old Covenant. And the writer is saying, those who reject the Son of God, the superior one, treat him as though he is nothing, something merely to be trampled underfoot. Secondly, they have, we read, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And the blood of the covenant refers to what Christ accomplished by his sacrifice. It refers to what he accomplished by shedding his blood, the blood that he shed in order to usher in the new covenant. This is the blood that he refers to in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, in the upper room when he is celebrating the supper with his disciples. We read his words 
that he took the bread and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This blood of the covenant that the writer of Hebrews points to refers perhaps to the fact that those who had fallen away from the church were also those who had perhaps regularly partaken of the Lord's Supper. So these aren't necessarily new believers. They are those who were fully aware of the benefits of Christ, and they turned away from him. And thirdly, we read in verse 29 of Hebrews chapter 10 that they have outraged the spirit of grace. Now, one of the blessings of the new covenant that we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews is that with the new covenant comes the greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the greater blessing of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit in the new covenant who empowers the preaching of the gospel in all the world. It was the Holy Spirit who empowered Christ in his preaching ministry and uh, in his uh, ministry of miracles. And so to reject the Spirit is to reject the work that the Holy uh, Spirit is doing in bringing the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Recall that during Jesus' earthly ministry, those who rejected Jesus attributed the power behind his miracles to Satan rather than to the Holy Spirit's empowering. And Jesus Jesus was very severe with those who accused him in this way. Now, loved ones, all of these three things are new covenant mercies, right? The revelation of Jesus as the Son of God, the revelation of his atoning work, the work of the Spirit in inspiring the Scriptures and in directing us to Christ, all of these are new covenant mercies, and all these are mercies that are superior to those found in the Old Covenant. And so there is a greater judgment when they are rejected. Because the scriptures are very clear that everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom is entrusted much, much more will be demanded. And so there is a terrifying judgment that awaits all those who reject the Son. And that's what we see so clearly expressed in verses 30 through 31, a just judgment. We read in verses 30 through 31, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These verses, words of warning, are quotations from the Song of Moses found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And it's significant to note where they're from because, again, in Deuteronomy, it's it's Moses' final sermon, we might say, to the nation of Israel, to the second generation that is preparing to enter the promised land. And Moses is warning them not to turn to idols, but to remain in covenant with God. And Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, in verses 35 through 36, depicts 
What will happen to those within Israel who turn their backs on God and who worship idols, who turn their backs on God's covenant? He warns them. The quotation we read is from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 through 36. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. So these verses as quoted in Hebrews point to the fact that God will judge all those who reject Christ, all those who seek salvation in any other name, all those who seek hope, who seek peace by any other means. And the reason, loved ones, is because there is no salvation, there is no hope, there is no peace by any other means. To reject Christ is to reject the only way of salvation. Because to reject Christ, loved ones, to reject Christ is to reject the one who took the judgment of God upon himself. At verse 31, where the writer says these very uh, solemn words, very serious words. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When we think about Christ, loved ones, he is the one upon whom the covenant curses fell, who experienced what verse 31 is referring to as he bore God's wrath for sin on the cross. It was on the cross that Christ took upon himself those covenant curses that Deuteronomy warned Israel about. Verse 21 through 25 of Romans chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul explains God's just judgment for sin and how Christ bore that judgment for his people. We read there in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. As we look here at Romans 3, Paul says there, but now, right? Something has happened. There has been a change. There has been an atonement that has been made for sinners through Jesus Christ. And what happens specifically, Paul says in verse 25, is that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Paul here is explaining the good news of the gospel, that Jesus' blood propitiated or satisfied God's wrath for our sin, that Christ's death on the cross was that propitiating sacrifice is a, a substitutionary sacrifice that satisfied the just wrath of God for all those who believe. 
So this is why the Apostle Paul, loved one, says that in the cross, we see a display both of God's justice and of God's love. See, the cross is God's demonstration that he does not merely wink at sin or sweep it under the rug or say, let's let bygones be bygones. But in the cross, God deals with the sins of his people and showing his complete justice. But he also reveals to his people his love. Justice in that, on the cross, Christ bears the penalty for our sins that God's holy law demands. The cross is God's public demonstration that sin will not go unpunished, that he is a righteous and holy judge. But the cross, as we said, is also a demonstration of his love for us, for his people. It is in love that Christ endured the cross. It is in love and for love that he endured the shame and the punishment involved in it. He willingly, we read in Scripture, laid down his life for us in obedience to God by dying the death that we should have died, by bearing the punishment that was ours to bear, by paying the penalty, loved ones, that we all owed. It was on that cross that our sins were taken from us and placed upon Christ himself. And so, loved ones, to reject Christ reject Christ is to expose yourself to that judgment that fell upon him. And it is a terrifying judgment, says the writer of Hebrews. And we see this in the life of Christ, do we not? Especially in that final week, as the Lord Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, and he's agonizing over what is about to take place, as he's trying to explain to his disciples the agony of what he is experiencing and what he is facing. And as we see those scenes in the final few moments of Jesus' life, we realize that there is more going on, that Jesus is dreading not so much the physical torment that he will endure at the hands of the Romans and upon that cross, but it is pointing to the spiritual agony that he will endure in bearing God's wrath for sin. Loved ones, the good news of the gospel is that we have one who bore that agony, who bore that wrath. And so we are to continue to look to him, to put our trust in him. And as we look at verses like this in Hebrews, this very solemn warning passage, natural question that might come up, many of us this morning is, how can I know, how can I know that I'm not an apostate, that I'm not one of these people that the writer of Hebrews is speaking about? Well, if you're here this morning, that is a good sign. The writer of Hebrews speaks about those who have left the church, who have left the fold. If you're in the church, that is a good sign. John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, speaks of those who left the church. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Disciple John pointed to the fact that by their leaving the church, by their leaving their profession of faith, 
many in the first century were demonstrating that they were not ever true believers. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you are struggling with this idea of, am I one of these people that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? Am I one of these people that the disciple John is talking about? I want to ask you this this question. Can you bear the thought of an eternity without Christ? Can you bear the thought of an eternity without him, of of not communing, communing with him, of not gathering with the saints in the worship of him? Loved ones, if you cannot bear that thought of being without him, the word of God assures us that we are his, that we consider him the pearl of great price, that we pursue him at all costs, that we cling to him at all costs, that he is that treasure in a field that we give up everything in order to obtain. If that is your desire this morning, then you are his. Many of us this morning are perhaps not just struggling with our own assurance, but perhaps struggling with passages like this because we are concerned for our loved ones who have walked away from the faith. All of us this morning have been touched by apostasy amongst those that we love, be it friends or family, children, parents, those that we love that once professed professed faith in Christ, but have since left the church, have fallen away. What do we do about that? Loved ones, what we do is we keep praying for them. We keep reminding them of their need for repentance. We keep trusting in the fact that God in his sovereign grace can draw them to himself. We get these wonderful pictures of God's power throughout Scripture as prophet Jonah preaches, and people repent. A whole city repents. As Saul, who was so angry toward Christ, that he hated Christ so much that he even persecuted the church, was changed in a moment by the power of Christ. We keep praying because we know the power of Christ by the Holy Spirit to overcome even the greatest resistance that somebody could put up to the gospel. We keep praying. We keep reminding them of their need for repentance. And loved ones, we keep resting, all of us, in the promise of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28, where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the assurance we gain through its promises and also through its warnings. Lord, we pray for those that we love who have walked away from Christ. We pray for our friends and family members who once held to the faith, but they have gone astray. Lord, we ask that you would draw them back to the fold of Christ that you would work in their hearts by your Holy Spirit that they might both know and love our Savior. And preserve us, we pray, by your mighty hand. We know that we are prone to wander and are easily led astray by our own sinfulness, but we continue entrusting ourselves into your care, trusting that you will 
preserve us to the end, that you will cause us to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in faith, hope, and love, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray.